in their nurturing, in their love, in their affection. But their language model to bridge the image with the word is absolutely critical. And I think, I say this now, my hypothesis, and I'll talk to it, that I think that what mothers do with their children in the language learning period, which I'll show you soon, is very similar to what an analyst or therapist does in therapy. And I think it may be one of the great links as to why the talking method works. That was from a talk given by Gillian Cleasy to the C.G. Young Society of Melbourne. And welcome to the Society's podcast, I'm Ariel Moy. The Young Society offers a space for the exploration and development of Jungian ideas and practice. We offer talks on the third Friday evening of every month, as well as courses and workshops, a Jungian library, a newsletter and discussion groups. Please visit our website at jungsocietymelbourne.com or our Facebook page. Today we'll be listening to a talk given by Gillian Cleasy. Gillian is a recently retired Jungian analyst. Before counselling, she worked as a speech pathologist and academic and has had a number of books published exploring language development and communication disorders. She's worked in Australia, Britain, the USA, Hong Kong and mainland China. She grew up in Turkey and Egypt with a multilingual and multicultural background and has had a wonderfully rich academic as well as lived experience of the importance and development of language. She's just written the first part of her autobiography, Switchback, An Inner and Outer Journey, which will be published later this year. In Dream Psyche Language, Gillian explores some fascinating questions around the relationship between the development of language from infancy onwards and our therapeutic path towards individuation. She delves into our first forming of relationships between images and words, the seemingly instinctive way mothers speak with their children, and its fascinating parallels with the huge benefits of talk therapy. Please note that Gillian does refer to a work by Ian Hamilton Finlay. We've been unable to access this piece. However, on our Facebook page, we've included some examples of his work. We hope you enjoy today's talk. Well, thank you very much to the committee, and uh, I think you're all very brave to come on a very hot night, so thank you too for being here, that's just terrific. And I think this is, uh, you'll realise why I think this is a great place, so I'm giving the first feedback, and it's for unusual reasons, um, and I'll tell you them in a minute, not the reasons you might think. But as I walked in, I, I did think, oh, first, and then I turned round and I thought, oh, I think the arch and the woodwork is absolutely magnificent and I wish I was sitting there and not standing here. And I think that too for a number of reasons. Because this is quite a challenge for me tonight and so my first, uh, could I have my first overhead, thank you. I'm going to talk personally for just a very little while. Because there's a story about whether I was going to stand and do this or not. And it all starts in my rather strange, much-traveled history. And um, I had a very 
I had the most, the richest, richest childhood and the trickiest, trickiest childhood that you could possibly manage, I think, because I was brought up in Turkey and Egypt during World War II. And my moving around and my father disappearing and being bundled onto trains and trailed through Palestine and um, sitting on platforms and not knowing where we were going and we went to South Africa and then we had some time in Trinidad. And I, when I was about two or three hours, I had access to four languages. We are getting to language and we're getting to individuation um, or not. And so what happened to me, because this led to being a speech pathologist and to then later a Jungian, I think. What happened to me? How do you cope when you're two to four and the whole world is going to pieces around you and you have access and speak, apparently, bits of four languages all jumbled up, jumbled up? Well, you have, and then you're sent to boarding school at age six on a ship with a and you go and you don't see your parents for a year because in those days children didn't fly back and forth they either went by sea or they didn't go to sea so I saw my parents once a year for a couple of years until they came back to England where I finally ended up just after the war and so you build a very tough exterior and you start caring for every other child who's crying and this is how I coped I didn't cry myself because I didn't want to upset my parents. <clears throat> so I always waved happily goodbye, right little Pollyanna, and waited till someone else was crying and began to comfort them. And I went to a very caring school, so that was okay. Um, but I built this exterior and I, cut, I can't remember crying ever. I didn't cry at all. And ended up in this fairly academic school and had to cope. I had learned, for example, a lot of French and I could swim very well because I'd been in a hot country, but I had no idea how to do pound shillings and pence or anything like that because I'd learned a decimal thing. And I was called the Egyptian child. So this stuck, you know, and I felt out of place with people of my own culture because I'd been brought up in a multiculture. I was a minority and I still feel almost happier in a minority culture, which may be why I've worked in so many places, than I did in my own culture for a very long while. So anyway, all this goes on, and I think, looking at typology, I went to an academic school, and then I went to a secondary school, which was even more academic, so then I went to university, which was even more academic, and became an adapted thinker. So that led me to speech pathology and science and stats and you name it, and um, I enjoyed it. I loved speech pathology and did most of my work here in Melbourne at the Lincoln Institute, um, and uh, just loved it, but always felt a little bit uncertain. That led me, through my work, to a lot of standing up and talking publicly in many a country, because I happened to have a specialty of which wasn't very well uh, followed. Um, so I got lots of wonderful invitations, and when my kids had grown up, off I went to uh, places to talk, and did it fairly easily. And then, long story, ended up finally at uh, Union, at the Institute, 
We needn't go into all the reasons that got me there. And I realized that in my, in my previous life, I had had a very strong persona. I wasn't a thinker. I was, in fact, a feeler. I had a very strong persona and probably a false self to protect myself as I grew. And from then on, I didn't do any more public speaking because I thought, this is about 12, 15 years ago, I just gave up. I thought I had relied on my persona too much. And actually, this is the first time I've spoken since. So it's taken quite a lot of courage, and I will have to use my persona a little bit because otherwise I'll be terribly bored because I'm just a sort of quiet, introverted feeler. So it's a real experiment for me, and that's why I said I'd rather sit there than be here. I'm not, I, and I'll tell you how it feels at the end of it all. Okay, so now, but you can see how language has been very important to me, extremely important, and also individ the individuation process. And so as a Jungian, I think very much developmentally. And I'm always thinking back, not because I've been trained really so much, as to, well, why would this symptom now, or this complex now, where did it begin? So rather than looking at it in a Freudian way, we've got to look back to the actual pain, or the incident, or the trauma, or the abuse, or all these things. I'm just inclined to think, from my own experience, hopefully not projecting it, as I shouldn't, but what happened when? And when I got to the Institute, I thought, well, good, now no more science, no more stats, no more marking, no more doing theses, all these things. But you know, I'd only been there a couple of years before I began to think, where does language come into this? Where does the development of language, what's the, what's the link between the image and the language? What happens when the child goes from the image to the language? And the image to the language is the thing that happens in interpretation of dreams. So it became an absolute fascination to me about what happens in this process and where do they link. And then of course all the neuropsychology came out and I became very interested in evolutionary psychiatry. So of course I began to get back into science. I began to integrate the science with the mythology and the archetypal theory and all the other things. And it, it has become a fascination. So that's really what I'm, I'm finally going to get around talking about. But first, before I do that, whilst I was at Zurich, I, I went to, I lived in England for, for um, visa reasons. And um, I went to a wonderful uh, art exhibition at the National Gallery in London. And it was called the Encounters Exhibition. And for it, uh, contemporary artists, sculptors, whoever, were invited to reinterpret their pictures of classical paintings. So they could choose a classical painting in the gallery and they could reinterpret it in their own way. And this was when I was, I think, writing my thesis on the topics that I'm discussing. And I came across one and I'm going to be circulating a whole lot of images in a minute to, to go around, and it will be there. In a minute, I'm going to get you to do a little bit of your picture to, picture to word, word to picture. You're going to be doing a little mini exercise. And I came across this most amazing painting. Well, it wasn't a painting. 
Um, it was, I've got it in the, I've got it in the catalogue here. So, it was 12 words, and it interpreted a lovely pastoral scene by Laurent Claude, and it's by Ian Hamilton Finlay. And I stood there, and you can't see it in this painting, but the words were etched, and there was a shadow behind the word. So, of course, for a woman, a shadow behind the word is an extraordinarily meaningful thing. And I went back and back, and I just want to read to you from the catalogue. The work's simplicity of form is in inverse proportion to the richness of its thought. Twelve simple words, all but one of them a single syllable, appear on a transparent plane against a ground colour determined by that of the wall on which it hangs. Each word names something familiar and stands alone, and no sentences are involved. The words tell no given story. Attention is thus focused on the words themselves and their relationships. And as I saw it, each word had a shadow, sort of eerily lit. It was just amazing. Their immediacy is the greater because they glow with what at first seems their own light. Engraved in the glass by sand blasting, they are in fact lit from a hidden source. Suspended in an intermediate space, they call to mind husbandry, natural phenomena and man-made things in such a way as to invite the viewer to link these elements through the individual imagination. And Hamilton had apparently not only got, you can see this, I'll pass it round, but there's a pastoral scene much in the style of Constable. And he'd not only got his ideas and creativity from that, but he'd also gone to a poet, poem by Christina Rossetti. And these are the words. To fill a basin and take a towel will preach a sermon on self-abasement. Boat, fishing net, flock or fold of sheep, each will convey an illusion, allusion. Wind, water, fire, the sun, a star, a vine, a door, a lamb, will shadow forth mysteries. So there is the shadow. So now I've got, we're going to take about three or four minutes, and there are the words. And I'm going to ask you, if you've got a pencil, uh, jot one down. If you haven't, just remember it. But if you have, it will be very interesting. And I'd love you to look through the words, and you can either do this just on your own, or chat to a neighbour and pick one and know that why do you pick that one? Just pick one that kind of pops out at you. And then reflect on the questions below. Can you all see them? The one the question below. Which word draws your attention first? What image, memory, or feeling does it inspire? What sentence, synonym, or phrase might include it? And how would you say it in that phrase to your neighbour, or your boss, or your friend, or your lover? What speed would you use? What tone would you use? 
what gesture and what expression. So just pick a word. And you might want to just chat to a neighbour. Just choose a word. And what does it make you think of? Just to yourself. Why does it pop out? So really the overall question is, which evokes something for you? Which word evokes something? Flash it triggers a memory or brings an image to mind. And then I would add one more because I was so struck by the shadow of the words when I was standing there. And actually this is a wonderful room to be in because the gallery that the, the picture was hung in had very high ceilings. Part of the National Gallery and those of you who know the National Gallery in London, some of the rooms had very high ceilings. And there was this shadow behind each word. And so I would say to you, does the thought that you've had, or the image you've had, does it have a shadow? Does it have another side? So for me, water, I love to swim. And um, I might think of swimming in a beautiful river or something, but I also might think of getting caught, tide, caught in the tide or something like that. Caught in the flow. And then I might take it further, because I try to be a good Jungian, and say, well, in the fact that I was caught in the tide and it was a bit scary, what was the pot of gold that came out of that? Jung always talks about, you know, we have these darker experiences that we repress, but often the pot of gold is in there. And it's so true. I think we sometimes look back on our less happy experiences and realize we wouldn't have changed them because actually a lot of strength came out of them and something really good came out of them. So, just to take my analogy, which popped into my mind just then, what would I think if you know I just caught, I got, got caught a little bit in the, the, uh, the river, the stream, and I might think, well, the lovely feeling when I got out of the bank and was safe or something like that. What is the pot of gold? And how much in all this do we rely on the words and how much on the images? And I hope that you could, because I can't possibly talk about speech, uh, well, language and Jungian um, practice uh, very fully tonight. But if you can sort of take that experience and then weave it into what I might be going to say and take it home and look at the handouts also with the quotes, something might sort of begin to gel, which I don't want to, I don't want to feel that I've got to try and tie the ends because I couldn't do it in 50 minutes, you know, language, but it's evocative. And that's what words do and we don't often realize it, as Jung says. The purely intrapsychic association cannot become the object of another's consciousness without being transformed into the familiar symbolism of language. Thus, a completely new element is added to the simple association, which exerts a great influence on the latter. So it's a sort of, and I think this fits in with his idea of going round and round the symbol circumambulating the symbol when you're interpreting a dream or whatever. Or whether, when a symbol comes into your mind. Why does it come? Or why do some, why do some words trigger a gut feeling, which of course is triggering a complex of some sort? Why can a word do it? 
a simple word. Now, I wouldn't mind betting that for some of you, and certainly for me, some of those words will touch a complex for, for one reason or another. I just throw that out. And it could be very positive. You know, complexes aren't bad. We all have to have them, and there are lots of them that are positive. They're both they have positive and negative poles. So to have a complex, we couldn't live without them because we wouldn't grow without them. So they're good news on the whole, except when they're bad. So we'll move on. Thank you for doing that. So these, these are some of the questions that I put on the overhead, which I hope to address, but I don't want to address them necessarily hier hierarchically. But these are the questions that sort of go around in my mind. What is it that dream images can help? It, what is it that dream images can help our understanding, return a memory, or spark a feeling? Why is it? Sorry, that's why it didn't make sense. Thanks, Mary. Oh, I've got, I've forgotten to tell an anecdote about Mary, which reminds me. I'm going to take, no, it's not really about you. But in my issues of about, I have to go aside, take an aside here. In my issues about science, or was I going to be all archetypal and full of creativity and imaginative and chuck for science. So then I finally decided, yes, I'd do this. So I wrote my little skirt. And then I get a phone call from Mary saying, that's far too scientific. Nobody will come if you have that sort of <laughs> So I overcompensated. I, over I went back too much. And um, so I just had to tell that story because it fits in. So I got a little, and then I wrote a much more casual little blurb. Abstract or whatever you call it. So does the mother's role in children language learning give us a clue? And I think this is one of the biggest clues I want to bring today. So I might spend a little bit more time on that than the other things. How is it that the talking method seems to work? How? Why? Freudian knew absolutely everything there was to know about language. They really did. Uh, as you probably all know, Freud uh, wrote a classical book on aphasia, which was the uh, loss of language due to strokes. So he knew an he was a neurologist as well. And you only really got to read the association experiment to know, and to know how many languages he spoke. But he had a really good knowledge of syntax, grammar, and possibly semantics. But there were no linguists working really in those days. The first person who really made the link was Lacan, the psychoanalyst Lacan. And he suddenly realized, he said, the structure of language is the same as the structure of the human psyche. And it seems they develop in a simple way, in a similar way. And it seems also that, that one of the critical things in any way, which doesn't get followed, is the role of mother language. We all hear about how we have to have good enough mothers in their nurturing, in their love, in their affection. But their language model to bridge the image with the word is absolutely critical. And I think, I say this now, my hypothesis, and I'll talk to it, that I think that what mothers do with their children in the language learning period, which I'll show you soon, is very similar to what an analyst or therapist does in therapy. And I think it may be one of the great links as to why the talking method works. But of course, it's very hard to prove because nobody wants to have their 
dialogue analyzed, their discourse analyzed in a therapeutic session. So that makes it hard to prove, but you can still have a hypothesis. So those are the questions. And one of the big ones, which I probably won't have time to get to, but I'll just mention it now, is differentiating between language problems and mental health issues. There are many, many people um, who are in mental hospitals, and there's some wonderful journal articles in JAP about this, and I've given you quite a few references on the handout, where when they come to be actually tested or analyzed, they actually have language disorders. And that's really sad. Now, whether the language disorders and the lack of comprehension and the, the internal stress and the interactive stress also then brings on some mental problem. That's quite probable, but they basically have an early, sort of a really uh, quite severe language disorder. And there's a lot of research being done on that now. Now this is the, this is the diagram stuff, and you've got it, and I'm going to, to try and talk to it as quickly as possible. So what I want to try and explain tonight is because I think a lot of people still say, oh, well, you're sort of very fairy stuff. What's it to do with the body? Even though he talked about spirit and matter, matter all the time. How does this fit in with the brain and modern neuropsychology and all the rest of it? Well, I've done, I've done a very schematic thing here, but I've tried to fit language in as well. So, uh, all of them, as it were, start at the bottom. And you see Jung's hierarchy for the psyche. Um, so we start with the archetypes and the center of the self. You might not have your scheme quite the same, but basically, the archetypes are our innate potentials. They're where we might go. They're the very center of our being. They're deep down in the unconscious. And then the ego, the persona. Okay? I'm going to do language last. And then on the right, we have the spinal column, the brain stem, the midbrain, right brain, left brain, and then the motor pathways. And these are in a developmental hierarchy. If you think phylogenetically, how evolutionary, evolutionarily, we developed. You know, you started with just the basic part of the being, the spinal column, as it were, just the central nervous system basis, and then the brainstem, and uh, so on up. And it was a long time before the left hemisphere was developed over the right. It's been a long evolutionary process, and, and language is in the left, and in the, I'll come to that in a minute, I have another model to show you. But now in the middle, is language. And it develops much in the same hierarchy. At the bottom, we would, Chomsky would say there is innate potential, and an innate potential for the ability to learn language in human beings, an innate potential, which is the same as an archetypal potential. So I should have that down at the bottom. And then, before you can learn language, you have to have sensation to hear, to feel, to see, to touch. And then you have emotion happening very, very early. So you see babies long before, I mean, very new babies will have 
grumpy faces and happy faces and wandering faces. So emotion is extremely early in the developmental hierarchy. Okay? And links with the complexes in the midbrain and the brain stem. Okay? And then, now, where I have the unconscious drawn across the middle, that level goes up and down. Between, so the ego, you would say, is consciousness. And the, un, but the unconscious moves up and down. And Jung used to talk about the abaissement de niveau, the lowering or the hiring. And the whole thing is, all the time, we're hoping we get more and more integration of the stuff underneath, the complex stuff. So, then the baby learns when they're learning language. They learn, ooh, <laughs> okay? And mothers use a lot of prosody talking to their children. Hello. So if I'm talking to you like this, um, and I suddenly say, how are you all? You say, God, the woman's mad. But if a little baby was playing on the floor here, and I said, I was talking like this to you, adult to adult, and I said, well, what are you doing? That baby who'd have been playing with their toys would look straight up to me. So the intonation is to get the baby's attention. It's like a filter. So the prosody and the intonation is very important and very much tied to emotion. And how what is, pros what is pros prosody? Is the intonation. 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 Prosody is intonation. I should have changed it, sorry. So prosody is intonation. Okay? Mimicking. No, pitch. Pitch going in time. up and down. Stress, pitch, rhythm, right. not, not words. Uh -huh. Okay? So mood. Mood. Pattern. So, Thank you. if I say to you, um, what are we going to do today? Or what are we going to do today? Or what are we going to do today? Or what are we going to do today? Every single one of those has a very different meaning. And as I say later, if a mother doesn't have prosody much because she's depressed or something, how do you understand? Or if, if you have a, a mother, or if we talk to each other with just a single word, where can you put that intonation? There's nothing to hang it on. So can you see how the stress is so important? Just which word you stress, whether you have a question, whether you have a statement. So at about the time the prosody is developing in a child, so they're looking round, they're queuing in, so they're looking round and they're thinking, hmm, that's where they thing open there. They get the idea that doors open and shut, that wheels go round. They're learning shapes and images, they suddenly know that when they say mum, 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 which is absolutely automatic, actually, mummy responds, so that's mummy. And so all the images, every child has to learn the image and know the image before they can learn the word. Although there is a difference because in Asian countries they learn the word and they have a much more developed right brain because of the way they learn language, which is slightly different through their, through their writing and things. So there's very different 
early stage of patterning. But for, for um, us, the, mostly the children learn these concepts and images, and then they match the word. And it is very dependent on mother language how they do this. So anyway, then we go, oops, excuse me, and that brings meaning. Because there's a link for a word with an object, that brings meaning. And then there's grammar, and you don't need to, I mean, I've written them down. So have you got a rough framework of all that? Because I want to get on really to what mothers do. But can you see how there's a developmental process there? And just before I get to that, I'd like to see just... And so if anybody is worried about how womb theories fit into what we know of uh, neuropsychology, and of course there's much more detail than this. I'm doing it very schematically. But really, you can see, and I'm sorry, imagery and emotion is in the right brain, and uh, logic, uh, language and reasoning is in the left. And they are linked by the path called the corpus callosum in the middle. And the complexes can affect each side very deeply. And also, there is, can be repression if things are the two hard baskets. So as I was telling you about my childhood, I um, repressed emotions for a very long time because they were too painful. Uh, but I also had wonderful images so the wealth of the images I had, imagine being a small child and tracing your fingers through the hieroglyphs of the pyramids, an eighth birthday party having camel rides around the pyramids, um, uh, what else? learning to swim in the Bosphorus, what could be more archetypal than that? So I don't want to spill a sob story about my feelings, that there are always pluses and minuses. But I had repressed an awful lot and consequently had a have a lot of complexes, big time. Okay, thank you. So we're over the, um, finished with the overhead there. Thank you very much, Troy. Can I give you one more job? The next thing I've asked Joy to do is to hand around some images as I talk about mothers teaching their children. And I've also got their, um, just a couple of others, and I've put a title, and I just feel that if I'm going to use words, I'd like some images going round as well to make associations. And had I been technologically still interested, I should have done a PowerPoint, but I'm not technologically so interested, so I've got the old paper going round. Okay, so how does all this language develop along with the images? And why is it it's so important? Because later I want to link it to what happens with our dreams and when we interpret them. And I'm just going back to, in fact, to demonstrate that now, to give it a bit of oomph. Have any of you ever read the book by uh, Maria Cardinale, The Words to Say It? Yes. Right. Well, it's a classic. Absolutely brilliant. And this is a book written by a psychoanalyst who had seven years Freudian therapy. She was so ill before she started. She was a practicing psychoanalyst. She was so ill before she started that she could hardly get to the clinic. And what happened was that in her dreams always, 
there was this terrible, this was the thing I want to talk about, this terrible eye that looked at her. And as it looked at her in her dreams, and she was absolutely terrified of it, ter not dreams, full-blown nightmares, there was this... Uh, she was completely dysfunctional. dysfunctional. She was eventually hospitalized. She was extraordinarily sick. Anyway, seven years later, it came out that this image of the eye was in fact, do you remember the old trains when you went to the loo in the old trains and you looked down and there was a hole onto the railway? Do you remember that? She had had a childhood a bit like mine. She was traveling all around Algeria while I was doing the same in Egypt. And her mother used to take her along to the loo and they'd have to queue there. So her mother would try and make her go and put her on this toilet as a little girl. And she was paralyzed with fear because there was this big black hole. Now it took seven years of analysis and the interesting thing that was not the noise of the, that it does make in the loo as you go along the train. It was actually the cine camera of somebody who photographed her in Algeria spending a penny behind a tree or something, you know, crouching down and spending a penny. So you might say if you were a Freudian and I'm not, but you might say, well, obviously there was some sort of complex about we, but to me it was a, you know, terrible thing. She, she, was, um, she was so sick later, but she recovered fully and she's practicing and she's written some other books. The other book is called In Other Worlds and they're both fabulous books. And I probably have put them on that list, at least I've put one of them. So that's why it's important to know why the images, she didn't have words, because what happened to her when the eye was there at the was pre-verbal. So she had no way of explaining later how terrifying it was about this terrible experience she'd had. But the getting the image back up, she was able to stick it all together again. So these images are critically important. And what is it that mothers do when they teach their children language? And why is it so important? Well, they have to be good enough mothers, like Winnicott says, you know, caring and affection. So prosody is very important. And they have this great range of prosody to filter out so that the child knows they're talking. But then it's very important to have common reference. The mother and the child have to be talking about the same thing. And some of you are holding up the picture by Renoir, and some of you are holding two, I think, of a mother and child and they are looking at the same object in common reference. Have you seen them go by? They're very beautiful. Uh, so mothers and children have this common reference and they have what they call deixis. Either the child goes, ah, or the mother points to something, or the mother follows the eye gaze of the child, but what they don't do so much in the language critical years is actually look at each other. They only look at each other when they're about to, so the child will be looking at something and um, will make a little and that says, now you say something, mummy, when they look up. So the mother then says, oh, that's a lovely cow, or what a big cow. And then 
she looks at the child and the child returns the, the so the conversation gets going then a mother uses this research was done in about the 1970s and 80s a mother uses as many as 44% questions 44% in what she's saying First she uses the yes-no questions when the child is almost not talking and you'll see little babies that, you know, mothers will say, do you want some egg? Have you been naughty? No. So they're yes-no questions and that's for the child to get the, the question going and the answers of negative and, wait a minute, I've got it, positive and negative. Have you got any more? And then it goes into WH questions. Who for person? When for time? Where for place? Why for reason? Which for choice? There are eight of them. How for manner? I've missed one up. And so the mother has to have a great range of these things. And in her uh, mother language, which, which is called motherese, and I, it also applies to caregivers. And you'll see little seven-year-old siblings doing the same, the motherese with their younger siblings. They talk in the same way to help this language acquisition. And it's to link, I believe, it's, uh, it's for language learning, but also to link the picture, the image, with the word. <coughs> And mothers only use 14% imperatives. Now here I want to come to the development of the ego as well. And also the development of the person. Because in that motherese there's this who. And also there's this deixis. Mothers will say that's yours and this is mine. And these are all of ours. These are ours. And this is happening exactly the same time as the ego is developing. And quite often, as we know as Jungian analysts, egos sometimes are hardly developed. And there are also many, many people who can't put themselves in the other person's place. They're just absolutely unable to put themselves in another person's place. So all this mother ease is extraordinarily important at this time of sort of one to four to five. And there's a quote here that I think is very important. The development of language, and it's by Machtica, and part of it's on your list. One of the shortcomings of the Jungian approach is the lack of an adequate, cohesive developmental theory. This was written in 1995, so perhaps we've got it in the last 12 years. The analytic process is in itself a developmental process. The application of the findings of infant and child observation, along with object relations theories, to the clinical understanding of adults has contributed to our understanding of the stages of transference phenomena. And in the clinical environment, you will often find that people use language which is a little bit different. A little bit different. Particularly when they are talking about their dreams. There is something to be said 
for recommending that all therapists have some experience working with infants and young children and a knowledge of phase-specific development. Persons emotionally stuck communicate in ways that differ from persons who can differentiate themselves from the other. So, just before I stop, because I think you might all melt, I've got a little bit more to say, but we could have some questions. For example, mothers only use 14% imperatives. So they don't keep saying, do this, do that, do the other. Go and put your socks away, get your food, eat your egg. They don't. The, 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 the good enough language mothers don't do that. They only use 14%. Now what would happen if a mother, who was as loving as they could be, uh, uh, Winnicott's perfect, effective mother, but she always said, no, darling, go and get your shoes. That's good. That's now, give them to mommy. Good. Now, run and get your school bag. Now, um, oh, just shut the fridge for mommy. And then get in the car. She's doing all the thinking. She's not describing, she's not expanding on what the child's doing, she's, she's structuring, she's directing the, the, the way. And so, what happens to the ego of that child? Is it me or is it mummy who's doing all this? So there's a role, I believe, in this mother language, is not only for learning language, but is for developing the ego and the thou other. So I think it's quite an important thing. And why do I think it's so important? Because I've given you what I think is motherese. And, and the other things that mothers and fathers do, they expand. So the child says, my bus. Oh, this is my bus or something. And the mother says, yes, it's your. It is. It's your big red shiny bus. She expands. She adds a whole lot of words. It's your big bus. Now, you give it to someone or something. But she... She expands. Now, in the clinic, in the talking method, in both Freudian and Jungian analysis, first of all, oh, and the big, sorry, I missed one out, and it's here, and I didn't read it. The mother follows the child's lead. She doesn't, she talks about the things that the child is doing. So the child is playing, she's peeling the spuds here and the child is playing over there, and she's peeling the spuds. And she says, oh, that's good. Oh, where are you going to put that? Right, good, the child doing a puzzle or something, or digging a hole or something, doing something. And she's talking about what the child is doing. There's one of those where the ch they're playing with plasticine. If she started talking about peeling the potatoes, would the child be interested? No way. Follow the child's lead. What do we do in therapy? We follow what the client wants to bring up. We follow what the dream might bring up. And some therapists, well, Freudians say much less than Jungians. We have gas bags comparatively, but I'm sorry. <laughs> but we talk more. But we follow and we expand. And we sometimes clarify. 
we ask questions. These are all things that happen in that same, especially when we're talking about dreams. We take the dream image and we walk around, much like we don't talk about what we think about the dream, just like the child down here playing, we follow. And it seems to me that one of the things that makes it work is that what's happening in the analysis is the same mechanism of transferring the image to the word by using the same strategies as the mother does when, or the father or the caregiver, or the siblings, they use this same thing. It's as if it's driven by the child, not by the mother. And so therapy is also driven by the person who comes in. And the, the dreams guide the pace. You might call that the therapeutic prosody. The dreams prompt the pace if there are dreams or drawings or sand play or whatever it is that's the medium that might be used. So, I'm going to go just a little bit back to my childhood and then I'm going to tell you what I thought about standing here the first time in 10 years. Okay. I'm just going to say that. Okay, it hasn't been, I mean, such a hot night. And thank you so much for, for being like you have been. But I just want to go back to my childhood a little bit to link it up. Um, when I went back to England to school, a couple of, two or three of you have heard this story before, but it's such a, it's so strong for me to explain. <laughs> I went to a drawing class and I loved drawing. And there were about six of us in this class, all boarders, all little <coughs> orphans from <coughs> War II, World War II, not literal orphans, but put in school because of it. And um, we were asked to draw our homes. So I settled to, absolutely, I felt safe. I could do something. I had the colors and I can see the papers. Maybe that's why I got you all to get pencils and papers out today. I don't know. But anyway, I got the colors and the paper. And I started drawing my home. And I, I don't know how many minutes, but as long as it takes to draw a home. And then I looked up and I put my pencils down and I felt quite chuffed. And I looked around at the other paintings. And I was absolutely aghast. All the other paintings, little four-windowed houses with neat little doors, little apple tree, maybe a wiggly path, a couple of trees, curtains, you know the sort, the chimney with the smoke coming out. My picture, long, tall block of flats, washing on the top, a camel, a palm tree, yellow desert, theirs were all green. I was absolutely horrified, and yet I hadn't made the link, because I'd seen in picture books, you know, English scenes, just as I'd seen desert scenes. But I felt so different. My imagery was a total different scene. And for every one of us, our personal experiences are probably as different as that. And if we're aware of it, it's so important. And now I just want to make another uh, connection that when I lived in Egypt, and I'm making this because we're in this room here now, and I've been very conscious of Jung's objective psyche, the deep inner connection between who we are 
and our inner connection to ourself, he called it. We might call it our soul. We might call it the God within. I don't know what we'll call it. But I was extraordinarily lucky as a child because I lived in Egypt and my mother was a really quite devout Methodist, quite strict. But she took me everywhere in Egypt and she would take me to the mosque and she'd say, this is God's house. And she'd take me to the Coptic church, this is God's house. And she'd take me to the pyramids and she'd show me the pictures and say, you know, they had these gods, this is the sun god, this is the sun god. And she'd take me to every single place, that you, the uh, mosques, and she'd, we'd listen to the Muezzin and she'd say, look, that's the man calling them to prayer. And I thought, well, okay, there were the difficulties about these symbols with language. But that was one of the pots of gold that I got. That it doesn't matter who it is that we pray to, whether this is, what's this, the Uniting Church here? It doesn't matter. People come here to get the inner connection, just as they might go and stand by a standing stone or go to a temple in the heart of China or whatever. And so, to answer Mary, there's something rather special about being here. <laughs> Thank you all very much. And if there's time, if you don't melt, I'm happy to ask her a question. Thank you for listening to Gillian Cleasy on Dream Psyche Language. She draws some powerful connections between the development of language and the development of the ego. She evocatively describes the ways in which both primary caregivers and therapists enrich our understanding and speech by developing the links between imagery and words. She notes how, in Jungian analysis, meaning can be created by exploring the client's associations between imagery and words in dreams, recollections, artwork and sand play. We hope you enjoy Gillian's wonderful talk. Thank you for listening and please visit us at www.youngsocietymelbourne.com or have a look at our Facebook page. Mm-hmm.